Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, so if you'd open your copy of the Scriptures to John, the 13th chapter. John chapter 13. <clears throat> Oftentimes, God gives us examples in the Scriptures, good and bad. And he accomplishes several things through those examples. His intent is to glorify himself, of course, ultimately, but to instruct the saints and also to bring conviction to the sinner. So that's my purpose here today. I want to honor and glorify God. I want Jesus Christ to have the preeminence, his work, and his person. I want you saints to be instructed and built up in your most holy faith. And I want those of you who are outside of Christ to see really who you are and see your state before the Lord and see and hear what you just heard. A fine mini sermon. Come to him. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. So John John 13, my focus is going to be on the last three verses of John 13. But for context, I want to pick up at verse 31. The setting is Jesus is there in the upper room with his disciples. This is the has been the Last Supper. So follow with me, uh, beginning in verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, the he there is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot has departed. So when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself. And shall straightway or immediately glorify him. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, where I go you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, I'm reading the King James, whither goest thou? I'm going to say it like we would understand it. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him and says, and said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, truly, truly, in the Greek, amen, amen, I say unto you, the cock, the rooster shall not crow until you have denied me thrice, three times. This, this section of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through chapter 17, is often known as the last discourse this is that last private teaching session that the Lord Jesus has with his disciples before they will go out into the Garden of Gethsemane and there Jesus will be arrested and he'll be taken off to be tried. Jesus has just told his disciples here in verse 33 that he's about to go away and they cannot go with him. They cannot go to where he is going. And he tells them in verse 34 and 35 while I'm gone, I'm going to give you something to keep you busy. And this is it, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is your charge. This is your duty while I'm away. And that still holds for us, brethren. 
Christ has gone away, he's coming again, but this is our duty, to love one another as he has loved us. And as is often the case, people are often more interested in matters of curiosity and controversy rather than in the straightforward, plain teaching of God's word. What our Lord has just taught his disciples here, this is not hard to understand. But it is seldom valued and it is rarely practiced among his disciples that we love one another as he's loved us. Jesus says, I'm going away, and while I'm gone, I want you to love one another. And it is at this point that, the, that Peter seemingly just glosses over this most important teaching of our Lord, and he interrupts him here in verse 36, and I'm paraphrasing Peter. He says, hold on a minute. What is this about you going away? Lord, where are you going? Now, isn't it interesting that Peter said nothing about the Lord's new commandment to love one another? He just glossed right over that. The only thing he heard was that his master was going away. And before Jesus can move on, and he will indeed move on, and he will expound greatly on this new commandment and on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to them in the coming chapters, he will move on. But before he can move on and get back to that, he must deal with what Simon Peter is fixed on right here. Now, no doubt Peter is wondering, what do you mean you're leaving us, Lord? We have left all, we've left our nets, we've left our boats, we've followed you all over Galilee and Judea the last three years, and you're leaving us? So Peter speaks up here in verse 37, Lord, why can't I go with you? I will lay down my life for you, Lord. Don't, Lord, you don't need to protect me, I'll protect you. Now, the common interpretation of what's going on here and what's about to happen in the garden is that Peter felt himself so strong that he really didn't sense his need to cast himself upon God and trust in God completely that he was that confident in himself. And so we know what happens. The hour of trial comes shortly out there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter falls flat on his face as he tries to resist the soldiers who come to arrest the Lord. And, as, and that is true as far as it goes, but that overlooks some very important things that I want to bring out today. Remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter was no coward. We don't know how many soldiers came to arrest him, but we do know it was a combination of the temple guards and this cohort of Roman soldiers that had been commissioned by Pilate himself to come and arrest the Lord Jesus. And some of the scholars say the number of soldiers who came were probably in the hundreds. All to say Peter was outnumbered about a hundred to one or more when he drew his sword to defend his Lord. And every gospel account including John's gospel, tells us that one of the Lord's disciples pulled out his sword and cut off the right ear of one of, the, uh, one of the soldiers there who had come to arrest the Lord Jesus. And John, of course, tells us that that was Peter. And he also tells us that the one he cut his ear off was Malchus. And I can assure you, folks, Peter was not swinging for his ear. He was swinging to take off his head. And evidently the soldier ducked, or maybe it glanced off his helmet, but he lost an ear. 
Now, I remind you of all that in order to show you that when Peter tells the Lord Jesus right here, I will lay down my life for you, he meant it. He really meant it. I assure you, when he drew that sword to swing it at the soldiers, and there's a hundred or more soldiers there, what do you think Peter thought was going to happen to him? He was ready to lay down his life for the Lord. And remember, the soldiers come to Jesus. I'm I'm looking ahead, but I'm assuming most of you are familiar with what happened. The soldiers come, and Jesus comes out of the darkness of the garden, and he meets them, and he says, who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? And, of course, they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am he. But he also says, let these go their way. Let my disciples go. I'm the one you're looking for. He turns the spotlight on himself. And then we know the disciples did leave when they arrested Jesus and took him off, sorry. And it was Peter and John that followed him afar off, even behind enemy lines into the very courtyard of the high priest. Here's my point. This is no coward we're talking about when we're talking about Peter. Peter's no traitor like Judas. He is courageous. He's faithful. He's true to what he said he would do for the Lord Jesus. And I also want us to see that what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, that really was not the test for Peter. Maybe on the surface it looks like it, but it wasn't the test. That really wasn't where Peter failed. Had Gethsemane been the trial for Peter, we would know Peter today as the brave disciple when no one else would defend the Lord Jesus, he would, even risking his very life against impossible odds. But the reality is the test for Peter would come from a direction that he did not expect, a direction he never thought. Now, many of you can testify to the same thing. You've had temptations, you've had trials that blindsided you. You weren't looking for it. And this is what's going to happen to Peter. The instrument of the test is not going to be these burly Roman soldiers who come to arrest Jesus. It's going to be a little slave girl. And the setting for this test will not be there in the black darkness of Gethsemane, but it will be in comparative safety standing, warming himself by a fire in the high priest's courtyard. Even the time of the test will not be when Peter thinks, when Judas comes to plant that kiss on his Lord's cheek. Instead, it will be when Peter is no longer looking for the test. We need to learn. We need to be ready. Here's my point. Peter was well prepared to fight one kind of battle, to withstand one type of test, but he was utterly unprepared for what was about to happen to him, for the kind of battle and test that he was about to face. I want to set before you in the remainder of the time at least three things that Peter was mistaken about and that we might learn. What Peter didn't see that he should have been looking for, and I hope we all will take heed because we're all a lot like Peter. The first thing, Peter was completely ignorant about who his enemy was. Peter assumes that his enemy is man. It's these other people that are standing against his Lord, against him, these soldiers. Judas is in the lead. 
of these soldiers that come to arrest the Lord with lanterns and torches and weapons. There's probably well over a hundred of them coming to arrest his master. And Peter mistakenly thinks that they're the enemy. Keep your place, but turn to Luke 22, if you would. We're going to be looking in Luke 22 and also in Matthew 26. But first of all, Luke 22... I want to show you just who the enemy is for Peter. Luke includes a little detail that John does not. Let's begin reading in verse 31. But if you just glance over to verse 33 and verse 34, you're going to see that this is exactly the same context as what we're looking at in John 13. It's the same context. It's just an extra detail Luke includes. Luke 22, 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, of course that's Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you. In other words, he's asked for you. The Lord Jesus is telling Peter, Satan has asked me to have you that he may sift you as wheat. We know from the story of Job that Satan can't just get to any of God's people at random. God had to give Satan permission to attack Job. And so this is a similar situation The Lord Jesus tells him, Satan, Peter, Satan has asked to have you. What does he want to do? I'll tell you what he wants to do. He wants to sift you. He wants to to put you through the strainer, Peter. He wants to shake you up. He wants to turn you inside out. Peter, your enemy is not that detachment of soldiers over there coming down the hill. Your enemy is Satan himself. The Lord Jesus told him that. In other words, this is not a visible enemy. It's an invisible enemy. It's not a a fleshly enemy. It's a spiritual enemy. It's not a domesticated enemy, you understand, but it's one who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, of course, I quoted a scripture that the Apostle Peter wrote right there, 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober, be, be vigilant because your adversary The devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I wonder how Peter learned that. How did he know that? He experienced it firsthand right here. You see, when Satan roars, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans come out of the hills and make off with Job's possessions. When Satan roars, King Herod sends his soldiers down to Bethlehem to slay all the babies in Bethlehem. When Satan roars, the high priest and the Sanhedrin conspire to put our Lord Jesus on the cross. When Satan roars, governments seek to shut down churches and they seek to fund more abortions and they call good evil and evil good. Satan is roaring. That's an invisible enemy. Peter doesn't know who the enemy is at this point. The enemy is the God of this world. And of course, that's a title given to Satan. You ever wonder why is he called the God of this world? Because Satan is the father of, and he controls those who are in the world, excepting, of course, those whom God has called out of the world. He's the father of those who are still in the world, living in the world, thinking as the world thinks. We often forget how powerful Satan is. 
He is an angel. He is an archangel. And let me remind you, when that one angel, angel Satan, tempted David, remember, to number the people, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, it was also one angel that God sent to destroy 70,000 Israelites as a judgment for what David had done. And let me also remind you, in Hezekiah's day, when the Assyrian army came against Jerusalem, one angel killed 186,000 men in one night. One angel. Peter, do you have any sense who has asked to have you? Who has asked to sift you, to work you over, and to test you and try you? We know the words of that great old hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress, and it puts it very well. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and he is filled with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Now let me qualify that. I sure in no way want to exalt the devil today. He may be mighty, but he is not almighty. He may be wise, but he's not all wise. But from Peter's failure, we need to learn. All of us need to learn that any of us can fall and any of us can fail miserably. We in our own strength are no match for Satan. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they fell flat on their face when they were in innocence in the very best of circumstances. And you and I, we were born into a fallen world. We were born in sin with a sin nature. How much less can we expect to stand in our own strength? And if you ever think that, <laughs> beware. Again, to quote Luther, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Peter was all ready for those soldiers coming down that hill to Gethsemane, but he was in no way prepared for this enemy. So that's the first thing to see. He was ignorant of who his enemy is, and we don't need to be. The second thing Peter didn't understand, he was ignorant of the nature of this battle. That he was going to fight. We're in a day of exponential moral decline in our, not just in our nation, in the world. And often have heard Christians say and even pray things like, it's time for Christians to stand up. Well, my question is, stand up and do what? Stand up and do what? I think I have an idea what they mean. We Christians, we need to stand up and vote. We need to stand up and make our voices heard on the issues. We need to stand against abortion. We need to stand against unjust laws. Stand up, stand up and fight. I get that. But the insinuation is that the church is really impotent today. And we won't stand up for anything anymore. Let me remind you, if we were all willing to stand against injustice and fight against injustice like Peter did in the Garden of Gethsemane, if we're willing to take up arms against injustice 
in our day. I'm just here to tell you we're all going to go down just like Peter did in his day. Because we're fighting the wrong battle there, folks. We must understand that we are engaged in spiritual warfare as the people of God. If you are a true follower of Christ today, you have entered into the arena of spiritual warfare. You've been drafted into the Lord's army. You're in the arena. You've been given a new nature. You've been given the armaments, the weapons of warfare. You, you're in the battle. And it's not against men. You see this spiritual warfare, it's an ideological warfare. It's a battle over what is true. It's a battle over what's right. It's a battle over what is just. It's the truth, folks, that's at stake. It's a battle over what men believe. It's a battle over what your children are going to believe as they grow older. That's the battle that we're facing. And when I say it's a battle over what men believe, I don't mean what men just nod their head to. But it's what they believe to the extent that it changes the direction of their life. It dictates what they do. It dictates what they read and see and think and speak. It dictates their calendar. That's really what men believe. That's what you believe. You see, in a sense, spiritual warfare, it's a battle for the hearts and minds of people. And its weapons are not guns and votes and laws and legislation. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know this passage, verse 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, pulling down fortresses of ungodly ideas, casting down imaginations. Those are arguments. Those are ungodly way of reasoning. And every other high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And listen, bringing into captivity every thought that you have to the obedience of Christ. That is our battle as the people of God. Listen, by force, we can neither enforce Christianity and by force, the enemy can never stamp it out. Never. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. We are storming the gates of hell with the gospel. And Christ is building his church here and in other places. This is a battle of ideas. It's a battle of truths. It's a battle of worldviews. We know Peter unsheathed his sword there in the Garden of Gethsemane to fight the Lord's battle. But oh, how different things would be just a short time later. Have you ever wondered what caused Peter's failure? There, warming himself by the fire, what caused this failure? What caused him to go weak in the knees, so to speak? He sure wasn't weak in the garden, was he? He was ready to take on the whole detachment of Roman soldiers by himself. And he was really ready to lay down his life for the Lord. What made him go weak? 
Why did he fail this test? What happened to him? If you're still in Luke 22, skip over to verse 54. Here Luke records for us what happened there in the courtyard of the high priest after Jesus was arrested. Look at verse 54, Luke 22. Then they took him, they took the Lord Jesus, they led him, brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a the King James says a certain maid, this is a little slave girl. A little slave girl beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him, with Jesus. And he, Peter, denied him saying, woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you're also one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And about the space of one hour, don't miss that, about during the space of one hour after another confidently affirmed, saying, of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. His speech gave him away, had an accent. And Peter said, man, I know not what you say. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, you shall deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. You see, this didn't happen all at once. Peter sat down there in the courtyard warming himself by the fire. This took place over the space of about an hour. Now, Turn to Matthew 26. Trying to weave all these different aspects together here. Matthew 26. I want you to notice in this passage what Peter was watching during that long hour. Beginning at verse number 62. But again, glance over to verse 69 and you'll see that what we're about to read, you'll see what was going on while Peter was out there in the courtyard. So what was Peter observing prior to his denial? Look at verse 62. I'll pick up there. The high priest arose and said unto him, said unto Jesus, You got nothing to say? Answer thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against you? Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, You said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He's spoken blasphemy. He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, now you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He's guilty of death. Then they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is it that smote you? We know from Luke's account, we just read it, 
that Peter could see Jesus and Jesus could see Peter during all of that happening. Do you understand what Peter has been watching for the better part of an hour? The one whom earlier he had awakened out of sleep in that boat on the Sea of Galilee when it was a great storm. Master, don't you care? We're about to perish. And he rises up and he says, peace, be still. And there was dead calm immediately. That same one now will not say a word. He's being beaten, spit upon, and he won't speak out. Peter had come to Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus this last time, entering into those gates, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed be he in the name of the Lord throwing down the palm branches, welcoming him as their king into Jerusalem. Peter had entered into Jerusalem with him. He was ready to see Jesus take his throne, take the power, ready to see him set up his kingdom and reign upon the earth. And now Peter's watching his king beaten, spit upon, and he's speechless, slapped around, mocked. That's what Peter has been watching for an hour. What do you think's going through his mind? Have you ever thought about it? What's he thinking? Could I have been mistaken? Is he not really the Messiah? Is he not really our king? Reading on in Matthew 27, Peter sat outside the palace. The young slave girl comes to him and said, You were also with Jesus of Galilee. He denied before them all, saying, I don't know what you're saying. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto him that were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied with an oath. He swears, I don't know the man. And after a while came unto him that stood by and said to Peter, surely you are all also one of them, for your speech gives you away. And then Peter began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And then, of course, the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, which said, before the cock crow, you're going to deny me three times. Back there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was not shy at all to identify with Jesus. He just heard Jesus say in the garden, I'm he. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? That's me. I'm he. And remember what happened? All the men fell down just at his declaration of his divinity. But now, when a little slave girl accuses him of being one of Jesus' followers, Peter curses. Now, when it says he curses, that doesn't mean he says cuss words. A curse in the scriptures is calling down the wrath of God on someone. He pronounces a curse. Who do you think Peter's cursing here? He's calling down a curse on himself in this way. I'll be damned if I'm one of his followers. That's what he's saying when it says he's cursing. I'm not one of his. 
And he swears. And by the way, when he curses, I'm not one of his. You understand what he's saying? When he says, I'll be damned if I'm one of his followers. No, Peter, you'll be damned if you're not. Because Jesus had prayed in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life. That they know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life, to know him. To say, I don't know him, you will be damned. And the same holds for any of you today. If you don't identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be damned. But if you will identify with him, repent of your sins and trust him and believe on him and come to him, he will have mercy on you. You will have eternal life. This is the struggle Peter's in right here. This is serious. He swears I don't know him. And it is then that the cock crows and Peter remembers what the Lord told him. He's broken. Their eyes meet. He's broken. And he goes out and weeps bitterly. You ever wonder what what was the expression on Jesus' face when their eyes met after he had denied him? I don't know. I've thought so much about it. Have you ever had someone who sinned against you terribly, but you've been praying for them? And when you finally see them, and they're broken about it, it's the same look I think you would have for someone you've been praying for that sinned against you. It's not a look of anger or even disappointment. It's a look of compassion. That's another sermon. We need to understand how spiritual warfare works, folks. The enemy of our souls, the devil, will plant these same sort of suggestions, these same doubts, these same questions in your heart and your mind. And if you haven't experienced as a Christian, you probably will. Is all this really true? Is he really who they say he is, who I thought he was? Is he real? Am I real? Am I really saved? Could I be wrong? Are my sins really forgiven? This is what Peter is struggling with. He's seeing his Savior, his Messiah, his King beaten. And he doesn't say a word. So not only was Peter ignorant of the real enemy, he was ignorant of the real battle. But thirdly, he was also ignorant of the way of victory in this battle. Peter's idea of winning the battle with force, with his sword, I'll get more of them than they get of us. That's how you win. That was in Peter's mind. Whoever's the bravest, whoever is the strongest, whoever's the most skilled in this physical battle, that's the one who wins. Don't turn yet, but I'm just going to remind you back from our original text in John 13 when Jesus tells Peter there, I'm going away and you can't come, Peter. Peter's response to me sort of sounds like a spoiled brat. Lord, why can't I go with you? Who says I can't go, Lord? I can go. I will go. And it's then the Lord looks at Peter and he replies, And you can almost see the look on the Lord's face. Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Really? Given all that Jesus had taught about his coming death, 
Many times, at least three times, he had specifically told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again the third day. He's told them that several times. I can just imagine the irony in his voice when he looks at Peter and says, Will you lay down your life for me? No, you see, it won't be Peter laying down his life for Jesus. It will be Jesus laying down his life for Peter. Peter doesn't realize that the way hasn't been opened up yet. And Jesus in John 14 will begin to explain that. I'm going away. Let not your heart be troubled. But I'm coming again. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming again to receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you'll be also. Peter, the way hasn't been fully prepared yet. Peter, you can't go now, and there are reasons you can't go now, but Peter won't listen. He's overconfident, of course. And Mark's gospel gives us another little detail. Peter not only claimed that he would die for Jesus, but he also spoke up about how much more loyal and faithful he would be than the others. Mark's account records Peter to say, although all the others will be offended, not me. I won't. So he lifted himself even above the other disciples. Pride. Peter sets himself up as an example of that famous proverb, pride goes before what? The fall. Destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 16, 28. All because Peter does not realize the nature of this battle that he's in. There's another aspect to Peter's failure. If you're still in Matthew 26, perchance, uh, in verse 31 there, Matthew 26, then Jesus said unto them, all of you shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. That's, of course, a quote from Zechariah 13.7. But this is, the re- this is a reason this is going to happen, Peter. It's written. It's written. This is all happening because Scripture said it would. This was the fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, Jesus is telling them, this is the plan. The plan is not for you to die with me. The plan is not for you to go to the cross. The plan is for me alone to win the victory. That's the plan. The plan is not for you and I to go about and establish our own righteousness and sacrifice ourselves to appease God. No, the plan is that Jesus goes to the cross. A perfectly righteous man bearing our sins and then in his own body on that tree bearing our sins and paying the price for our sins to bring us to God. That's the plan. And Jesus will tell them, I must go to prepare a place for you. I've got to open the way. I'm the way, Peter. He's telling them that, and he will tell them that in chapter 14 of John. Still in Matthew 26, verse 51. And behold, one of them which was with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. We know that that was Peter. Reading on, verse 52. Then Jesus said unto him, put up Again, your sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Do you 
Not think that I can now pray to my Father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. In other words, Peter, do you really think this is happening because I don't have enough power or resources at my disposal to keep it from happening? Do you think this is happening because somehow God's not hearing me or answering my prayers? Don't you realize, Peter, that I can call down 12 legions of angels and more and God will answer me. Verse 54. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? What does he mean it must be? Again, folks, this is the only way that the kingdom of Christ can be established. He's got to go to the cross. This is the eternal purpose of Almighty God. This is the plan of redemption. This is not plan B. This is plan A. There is no plan B. This is it. This is the one way. This is the only way. It's like an architect who lays out the plans for how a building is to be built. And Jesus is saying, men, this is the foundation for the plan right here. This is the first step to bringing this kingdom into being. That the victory, listen, the victory is going to be won not by some fleshly conquest, but by a seeming defeat. The victory is going to be won not by seizing power, but by giving up power. The victory is going to be won not by me standing up for my life, but by me laying down my life, men. So many examples. Think of Samson. Everybody knows about Samson. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that he's numbered there in Hebrews 11, right along with all the great examples of faithful patriarchs? And he's also a type of Christ. But he had so many moral problems, we wonder how that could be. But there's one thing that really stands out in the life of Samson. After his humiliation and after his defeat, the Bible says this, that he killed more Philistines in his death than he ever killed in his life. And if you know the story of Samson, he killed a lot of Philistines in his life. But he killed more in his death than he did in his life. But do you see, folks, Samson's death brought the house down. And so did Christ. Out of his seeming humiliation, out of an apparent defeat, Christ will bring down the kingdom of Satan. He will lay the foundation for his kingdom in his death. This seeming utter act of humiliation at the cross is in fact the very glorification of the Son of Man. And that was the verse we began with, John thirteen thirty one. Now is the Son of Man glorified. It was at the cross, I hope you understand, that Jesus overcame the world. That's where he defeated the enemy. That's how he cast out the devil. That's how he brought down the kingdom of Satan. Beloved, the cross, listen, the cross is the only way of victory in our spiritual warfare. And we best not think it come any other way. Is Christ going to win the victory through suffering, through humiliation, through stooping, through serving, through giving, and finally through laying down his life, and then we think we're going to overcome some other way? No, sir. 
The Apostle John will write this in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5. He says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our what? Our faith. Our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen, folks, you're no match for Satan, but Satan is no match for Christ. So faith in Christ puts you in a position to overcome the world. To overcome everything that comes into your path that is a hindrance or a stumbling block to you being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. It's faith in Christ and faith alone by which we overcome the world. Hallelujah. You all know Ephesians 6. Paul is exhorting us there to put on the whole armor of God because we wrestle. Listen, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against principalities, powers, rulers of this dark world, against spiritual wickedness, spiritual evil in high places. And he says this, listen, above all, this is the King James, above all, at the top of the list of all these uh, defensive weapons, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to extinguish, quench all the flaming, fiery darts of the wicked one. Not some of them, all of them. By the shield of faith, again, you're no match for Satan in this battle, but Satan is no no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do I get in him? How do I stay with him? How do I abide in him? Take up the shield of faith. Hide yourself in him. I always envision it like this, taking the shield of faith, it, in a sense it puts a force field around us as the people of God. Listen, we don't need to be concerned about what Satan is doing. We need to be consumed with what Christ has already done. That's how we win the spiritual victory in life. That's where our safety lies. We're saved by the gospel. But listen... Some of you folks have been a Christian a long time. I've known some of you a long time. You've been walking with the Lord a long time. The gospel is more important to you now than it's ever been before. You and I need to be consumed with who Christ is and what he's done. Not worried and concerned with what Satan may be doing. I'll get to that more in just a moment. I love what John, the vision John was given in Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down who accused them before God day and night. And they overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. That's how they overcame. That's how you will overcome. How can we stand? We're weak. How can we stand against this roaring lion, against this devil? How do we silence his terrifying roars and accusations against us? I'll tell you how. When the accuser of the brethren, Satan, comes and he tells me what a weak person I am, Tells me what a failure I am oftentimes. Tells me what sins I have committed. Throws them up in my face. 
you know what I should say? And you know what I do say in my heart? You don't know the half of it. You don't know. It's far worse than you even know. But my confidence before God is not in me. All my confidence before God is in Him. It's in Christ alone. It's in who He is and what He's done. Christ loved me. Even me. And He gave Himself for me. I've been a Christian 41 years. And I thought I'd be a lot farther along in my sanctification than I am. But he loved me. He will never cast me out. All my hope is in him. I have less and less confidence in me all the time. As the hymn goes, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What a glorious thing the gospel is. Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. Beloved, do you understand that's what every believer has? Every believer has a Savior who is interceding for you all the time, ever living to intercede for you, even in times of trial, even in times when you fail miserably. He's praying for you. And I'll tell you, no, heaven will only declare how many times this man has been one prayer away from apostasy. And it wasn't my prayer. It was his prayer for me. So in thinking about Peter's failure, and in thinking about our own propensity to fail in time of trial, I'm a preacher. What, what should I do as a preacher to exhort you and to help you? Should I say, stand up when trial comes and opposition comes, stand up and fight back? You understand Peter's problem wasn't that he wouldn't stand up. His problem was that he wouldn't kneel down. They had been out there in the Garden of Gethsemane and Christ had bid Peter, James, and John to come with him a little farther. Watch with me. Pray with me. And he couldn't even for an hour. He couldn't stay awake. He couldn't pray. Peter, could you not spend one hour with me in prayer? rather than falling asleep. Peter's problem is my problem. It's our problem. We spend so many hours a week pursuing the almighty dollar, things we have to have physically to make it. Probably often much more screen time than prayer time. This is a reality of our lives. Our problem is not that we're afraid to stand up. Our problem is that we hardly ever kneel down. Should we learn from Peter? Peter's sleep in the garden was the sleep of an overconfident man. A man who, at least at this point, was not really considering how vulnerable and weak he was and how needy he was of God. 
This is also true of parents who do not really labor in prayer for their children or pastors and elders like some of us who often don't pray for God's power to build up and keep their congregations. It's true of any and every Christian who spends little time in God's word and is very inconsistent in God's worship. If you're a follower of Christ today and that in any way describes you, I'm here to tell you you're in danger. You're in grave danger. Your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion moving about. And he may, even at God's permission, be about to sift you, to put you through the blender. And just like Peter, that failure will be bitter and it will be shameful. The neglect of spiritual resources just reveals an ignorance and an overconfidence that we often fall into in this thing of spiritual warfare. We're often like Peter. We fail to understand who the enemy is. We fail to understand the nature of the battle. And we fail to understand the way of victory. John writes, 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. Literally, the whole world lies under the sway, under the power of the evil one. Do you understand what he's saying there? In other words, the whole world, outside of Christ, the whole world lies like a baby, all cozied up in the arms of the wicked one. Content, eating, drinking, being merry, unwittingly and unknowingly just waiting to perish. That's the world. Many of us... We're Christians, and Christ has told us to shine as lights in the midst of darkness. We're to radiate gospel truth. We're to radiate the light of Christ into the midst of this dark world. We're to live as saints in the midst of sinners. That's who we are. We're to have a testimony in every single thing we do, whether we're here at church, whether we are at work, wherever we we are and whenever we are We're to bear witness that we are his. We are Christ's disciples. We stand for him. He's our master. He's our king. He is the one that rules our lives. And that has to be more than lip service to have a testimony in this world. We need to understand there are bigger things going on in the universe than just us. Had our Lord not told Peter that Satan desires to have you, Peter, Peter would have never known. He would have never known what was happening to him there by that fire. He wouldn't have put two and two together later and been broken over it. The Lord told him. The Lord didn't tell Job. In the case of Job, Job never knew what was going on in heaven. He never knew of this challenge in heaven Whether Job was going to stand or whether Job was going to fall and curse God, Satan was sure that if God just took away Job's stuff, he would curse God to his face. Satan accused God. Of course he serves you. He's the richest man in the east. You put a hedge around him. You blessed everything about him. Just take that away and he will curse you. Job had no idea that God was going to use him as an example of a man who loved God and hated evil. If you're a Christian, God, no matter who you are, Christian or not, God created you to glorify himself. That's why you're here. 
but especially for those of us that are believers, God is going to use us to glorify his name. Many many people often get that backwards. They want to become Christians so they can be somebody, so they can get glory in some way, have some recognition. Let me remind you, if you're a Christian, we have heaven ahead to share in the glory of God and the glory of Christ. But for now, while we're here, our business is to be about bringing glory to him. We don't share in that glory. It's all to be directed to him. It's why he made you. Young people, that's why God made you. That's your chief end, to glorify him and to enjoy him now and forevermore. Don't waste your life. Saints, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your trials. I mean, we've, we prayed, we know of physical infirmities, illnesses. We have many in our church as well. This is a unique platform for God's people. Not to say, why, why, but how, how, how can I glorify God in this situation? The brother shared earlier, there in John 11, they're, they're at the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death. That's not what it's about. But it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified in this. That's your, your trouble, your trial. It's not about you. It's about him. How is he going to be glorified in this? Let me close here. I am grieved like you all are at the downward spiral of our nation and our culture. You know, when I started grade school 120 years ago, uh, we began our day with scripture reading, and we began our day with prayer, and we said the Pledge of Allegiance. I think those days are probably long gone. All you have to do is open your eyes and look around what's going on, all around us. But listen, your duty, our duty, is not to reform our culture. If that happens as a secondary consequence of, of preaching the gospel and living as a Christian, then amen. But that is not our duty. Our duty is to call men out of this culture to a counterculture, a different way of life, a culture that honors and obeys and glorifies our God no matter what. That's my calling, and that's your calling as a Christian as well. People say, don't you want to see the world get better? Listen, this world is passing away. The world is going to be burned up and everything in it that's not glorifying to God. We're not here to save the world. We're here to call men out of this world, to call men to Jesus Christ. We're to demonstrate to the world what it's like to belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. That's what we're called to. I thought this was interesting. In the days of the Reformation, Luther and Erasmus, who was still yoked with the Roman Catholic Church, they're writing back and forth. They're debating different things. And one of Erasmus's arguments to Luther, he said, you know we need the Roman Catholic Church. We need that system in place because we need to be able to tell people that they need to do good deeds to get to heaven. He said, if we don't, what's going to keep men from just living as wicked as they want to? What's to keep our nation from declining and getting worse and worse? And Luther's response was very interesting. He wrote back to Erasmus and he said, that's not my problem. My problem is not to reform the world, but to call men out of it. And that's the world we live in as Christians. 
That's what we do as Christians. We call men, women, boys, and girls today, tomorrow, and every day to follow this Savior that we know of from this, this book. So the question is, will you follow in the steps of a suffering Savior? One who gave himself willingly into the hands of wicked men. They didn't take his life from him. He offered it up. He had power to lay it down, power to take it again. He's a suffering Savior. Gave his life into the hands of wicked men to do with him as they pleased in order to fulfill the will of God. Will you follow a serving Savior? One who had just before in John 13 ungirded himself, bent down, and washed the old, dirty, stinking feet of his disciples. Showing them this is what love looks like. Are you willing to follow that kind of savior? You should be because that's the only one there is. There's not another one. We're never meant to save ourselves, beloved. We're meant to witness to our savior, Jesus Christ, who saved us. He made provision for the fall before you were saved. And he's made provision for your failures after you're saved. That encourages me. He knew you would fall in Adam, of course. He made provision for it. But he also knew and knows you will fail as a Christian. He's made provision for that as well. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh fails. And my heart fails. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beloved, just knowing that Christ will be faithful to us, no matter how miserably we might fail, we now have the privilege of doing the very thing that Peter failed to do in his hour of trial. What should he have done when they said, are you one of his? No matter what, he said, yes, I'm his and he's mine. That's my Lord. He should have been ready to give an answer to every man that asked him the reason of the hope that was in him and do it with meekness and fear that's our mission as the people of God waging spiritual warfare by the gospel of Christ witnessing to the truthfulness and love and mercy and grace of a great savior let's pray father we thank you again that you are the father of mercies and the God of all comfort and consolation. Thank you for sending your son to save wretched sinners, vile sinners like we were and like some still are. We thank you that the way is still open to approach you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit of God, would you sanctify us thoroughly Holy Spirit of God, would you convict the sinners today that they might flee to Jesus Christ and find refuge in him. Glorify yourself 
today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.